We're continuing on in our series through Genesis, uh, particularly now in the Abraham narratives, and we are in Genesis 14. So if you want to turn there, I'm going to sort of break with the pattern that we've had uh, to this point. I'm not going to read every verse that's in here uh, just for the sake of time and um, trying to keep it as uh, simple and easy to follow as possible. But let me read, let's say, let's take 14, 1 through 5, and then we'll skip down, say, to verse 11 and read from there. So, Genesis 14, 1 through 5, and it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elessar. Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shem, uh, Shemeber, y'all pray for me as I read, <laughs> king of Zeboim, this is what we have you for, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these came as allies to the valley of Sedim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kederlaomer, that is, twelve years they, the five cities, including Sodom and Gomorrah, around the Dead Sea. For five years they had served Kederlaomer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kederlaomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated, and then begins another list of people groups that this four-king alliance headed by Kederlaomer knocks off on their way down to the Dead Sea area to get Sodom and Gomorrah and Zeboim and some of these other cities to get them back under their rule. All right, so we're going to skip ahead down to verse 11. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed, that is, Kederlaomer and his alliance conquered those cities and took their food supply and departed. Verse 12, they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew, now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and these were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan, which would have been the northernmost point of Israel when it became a nation later. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. Verse 17, then after his return from the defeat of Kederlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, that is Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their share. Even this strange, odd passage is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do need You. 
We need you to give us insight and understanding, not just into the meaning of the text as it stands in this place of redemptive history, but we need to understand its significance and relevance to us as your people in this New Testament era. We ask that your Spirit would give us clarity of thought and would give us the ability to recognize your truth, your voice, as you speak it to us through your words in Scripture. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So what in the world do you do with a passage like this? Right? You've got four kings, the names of whom you can't even pronounce, who are living in some distant place, probably around the area of Mesopotamia where Babylon and Assyria and and that region. And you've got these four kings who have to come into the region of Canaan to deal with five kings, including the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and these other cities around. And they get into a battle, and then some kings go into tar pits and Then Abram gets a force together, and he goes, and he does a surprise attack at night. And most of us, by the time we are not even halfway through chapter 14, are wondering, I hope chapter 15 gets a lot better, because this doesn't mean anything to me. All right, so so this is me through this week, leading up to this Sunday, trying to figure out what in the world do you do with this? Let me, let me try to point out a couple things that I think help us orient ourselves to this passage and the role or the function that this passage has in the Abraham story, but not just in the Abraham story, the way that it would function and instruct us as well. One of the things that stands out, if you were to actually read every single verse in chapter 14, is that the word king occurs 27 times in chapter 14, 27 times king occurs in chapter 14. Now, most of the time in the Old Testament, one of the ways to clue yourself in to what the author considers important or a key theme is to look for repetition the repetition of terms, the repetition of phrases or ideas. The fact that we have the term king repeated 27 times in the span of 24 verses is probably a not-so-subtle clue that kingship is a theme that lies behind or lies as a backset, a backdrop to this episode in Abraham's life. We can agree on that, right? All right. Second, One of the interesting things, and we didn't read this verse, so I'll draw your attention to it now. If you look at verse 9, when Keterleomer's force is coming into the region of Canaan and is approaching Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, the the five-city alliance that contains Sodom and Gomorrah, they they determine that they're going to take the fight to Keterleomer. They're going to go meet them out in battle rather than just sit and wait for him to come. And so we're told that in verse 9, and at the end of verse 9, when it talks about the forces of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities going out to meet Keterleomer, the end of verse 9 stipulates that this was four kings against five kings, four against five. It's odd to point that out right? Could have just as easily said, these guys went to fight these guys, and then go on to verse 10. But you actually stop to say four or five against four. Now, we have kids in our household who are still very much in math classes, all right? So, I put on my math hat, and I did some, uh, some sophisticated arithmetic, And I discovered that 4 plus 5, or even 5 plus 4, whichever order you want to put it in, equals 9. Right? And right now the heavens are opening up. (laughs) No. Okay. 9. Here's why I think that's important. Nine kings you have that are being singled out, which means that when you get to this odd person Melchizedek who comes out of nowhere, Melchizedek makes king number 10. Again, so what? One of the things that 
shows itself to be a pattern in the early chapters of Genesis, particularly in the genealogies. In Genesis chapter 5, when you're going through the genealogy of Seth down to Noah, you find out that ten generations from Adam down gets you to generation number ten, which is Noah. Noah is the one, the tenth in the line, that the author really is wanting to get to that he wants to put his focus on. Then a little bit later, in chapter 11, when the author is taking us through the genealogy of Shem, you go through and you find out that Abram, which is the guy that the author really wants to get us to, that he wants to pay attention to, Abram turns out to be, lo and behold, number 10 in the genealogical line. So in chapter 5 and chapter 11, as you're working through various players, all of whom have their various roles and places of significance, the person that holds the most important spot for whatever reason ends up being number 10, as Carissa sits on the front row. Here, you've got nine kings that are laid out who drive all of the action in the story but ultimately, it's not the nine kings that the author wants us to put our attention on, it's king number ten. King number ten, though, we have no idea where he comes from. We have no idea how he got here. He just shows up for two verses and then he's gone again. Doesn't appear anywhere else in the Old Testament except for one mention in Psalm 110. Even so, 27 times the term king shows up in Genesis 14, and it's king number 10 that's being emphasized here in Genesis 14, so you're still in the mindset of looking at kings. Last point to make, even though Abram is not said to be a king, Abram is depicted as a king through certain implications or subtle ways. And so I think that when you consider 27 times king is mentioned, the main king that we're supposed to be putting our attention on is Melchizedek when he comes onto the scene. Well, how does Abram fit into all this? I think Abram, we are being encouraged to see Abram as being sort of this hidden king or this king incognito in disguise who is going to engage all of these other kings in various ways. Here's, here are two or three ways that Abram is presented in a subtle way as king. Number one, if you go to verse 13, we're told, a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Abram the Hebrew, where does that come from? In other words, Abram is given an ethnic title, he's, he's associated or he's recognized as the head of a certain people group, which is extremely odd because right now, does Abram have a people group to call his own? No. He doesn't have a single solitary descendant, and yet he's being talked about as if, as if he's the head of some great clan or great tribe. Why? Well, in part, because the author is, I think, intending for us to see that Abraham, even though he does not look like the king at the head of a great empire or a great nation, he is being considered or treated as one in this particular scene in Genesis 14. Another reason that Abram comes across as a king in disguise is because just as you have an alliance of four kings and an alliance of five kings, you find out that Abram himself has his own alliance. So in what verse would that be? Uh, let's see. Verse 13 again, Abram the Hebrew was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and these were allies with Abram. And so Keterleomer's alliance of kings, of four kings, comes to make war against the alliance of Sodom with, with five kings, and then intervening in this chaos is Abram with his alliance of two or three other men. So Abram comes across as a king in his own right, leading his own allied forces into the battle. 
Third, when we do get to Melchizedek, Melchizedek seems to treat Abram as a king. When Melchizedek comes out to meet Abram, we're told in verse 18 that Melchizedek, king of Salem, brings out bread and wine to Abram. Now, just by way of example, if you think back in your Old Testament history when Jesse sends David to check on his brothers who are fighting for Saul against the Philistines, and he sends David with a gift to give to Saul, one of the things that Jesse sends David with is bread and wine. Further, in 2 Samuel, when David is sort of the king-in-waiting but still being harassed by Saul, and he comes into contact with Nabal and Abigail, when Abigail wants to try to make friends with David, she brings to David and his men bread and wine. And later in 2 Samuel, when Absalom begins a revolt and David has to flee Jerusalem, Ziba, the servant, comes to David and his men bringing bread and wine. There seems to be sort of the, the hint of some sort of a royal banquet or royal meal that's being presented to Abram by Melchizedek. So in all of these things then, whereas all of the four-men alliance and five-men alliance are designated with king titles and Abram is not, I think because of the emphasis on royalty and kingship in Genesis 14, we ought to think of Abram as being a king in his own right, albeit not recognized as a king by the earthly powers that are around him. Let me pause right here because some of this, right, is it, you can just kind of write off as being academic and, okay, let's get to the good stuff. I, you know, what, what does this matter to me? Here's, here's one of the reasons why this matters. Because as God's promise begins to unfold with Abraham, we're going to see more and more often that part of what it means to live by faith in light of the promises of God is to live in the present according to what you will be in the future. So, for example, all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abram out of his homeland to go to a land that I'm going to show you, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. God tells him, I'm going to make you a nation, a great nation. Abraham does not, in chapter 12, in chapter 13, in chapter 14, in 15, 16, 17, on and on and on, Abraham does not look like the king of a great nation. But you know what he does here in chapter 14, which is what we'll see in just a few moments? He acts like a king. Let me make a real quick transition to the significance of a statement like that, making that observation in Genesis 14 to where we are right now, seated here in Edgewood Baptist Church. You and I need to remind ourselves over and over and over again that part of what it means to live a life of faith in light of the promises of God is that in the present day-to-day -day realities that we live in, God is calling us to live as those people that He is going to make us in the future. He calls you and I saints. He calls us righteous. If anyone were to look at me, if anyone were to examine my thoughts, my impulses, my desires, would they see me as a saint? Would they attach saint to the front of my name, Saint Jonathan? No, they wouldn't. What do I do then? Do I throw up my hands and say, oh, well? Or do you say, on the authority of God's Word, by faith, but God has called me a saint, therefore I'm going to live as a saint. God has said that there's coming a time when I will rule and reign with Him, therefore I will live now as if I am ruling and reigning with Christ. That's what it means, in part, to lay hold of God's promises. It means to take the Word of God 
that yes, at times, speaks to things that lay far ahead in the future, but to appropriate it now and to live as if the future has already broken in to present reality. By the way, that's, that is in part one of the major themes of the gospel itself. That all of creation stands under God's judgment, that all of us have to give an account to our King and our Creator, but that that future declaration has made its way into the present because Jesus Christ has invaded this present world to bring forward to us now the declaration that we will be declared righteous in the future. Our whole lives as Christians are oriented to the fact that God promises to do things for us in the future. He gives us small installments or down payments of those promises, blessings that we can enjoy now, but much of the Christian life is acting on those promises now, even though we will not lay hold of those promises and see the fulfillment until the future. That's, that's Abram's life. That's going to be Isaac's life. That's going to be Jacob's life. That is Israel's life. That is your life and that is my life. You may not feel like, you may not think that you are this, that, or the other when it comes to what God declares about you. It does not matter because God has promised, because God has declared, you take the promise of God and you live in light of what God has declared you to be. That is not name it and claim it theology. That is taking the Word of God and that is living by faith, acting on the power of the Spirit, acting out the promises of God and acting out the miracle that we are waiting to see. Now then. Two points to try to break down here as far as it concerns Abram's role in this narrative and in this conflict, this battle or this war between the kings. I'm going to try to break it down into two parts, taking verses 1 through 16, or really the latter part, say verses 13 through 16, and then taking verses 17 through 24. If you're a note taker or a mental note taker or you just like to have an outline because it's not a sermon unless there's an outline, right? Here's what you can take. Number one, point number one is, if you were to sum it up, is a presentation or a picture of a king's conflict. Remember, Abram is being depicted in subtle ways as a king, and so we're going to see King Abram in conflict, engaging conflict taking conflict on into his own hands, initiating the conflict. And then number two, you go from King Abram's conflict to King Abram's choice. And the choice has to do with where he's going to find his reward. So conflict and choice. So we come back to verse 13. Keterleomer and his forces have moved into Canaan. They have moved down into, uh, approached the Dead Sea region. Sodom, Gomorrah, the other cities with them have moved to meet him out on the battlefield, and they're defeated. Because of their defeat, Keterleomer's forces take riches, take people, take livestock. They loot and they plunder, and they haul them off, and they are on their way to go back home to the region of Mesopotamia where Babylon and Assyria are in most of the maps that we look at in our Bibles. Abram gets word that this has happened. Most important for Abram is the word in verse 16 that these forces are bringing back all the goods and that they are bringing back his relative lot with his possessions. I skipped ahead. That was verse 16. That was after Abram had won. 
Verse 12, that's what I was looking for. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Abram then gets word that Lot has been captured, and Abram sets off to rescue Lot. So one of the things that we might ask ourselves is, if Abram is being depicted here as a king, King Abram, what does a king do when he hears that his family, his flesh and blood, has been captured, has been taken as a slave by hostile forces? One commentator who was looking at this passage says, you know, what's typical in a situation like this, when we ask ourselves, when we, if we were to put ourselves in Abram's position, you hear that Lot has been captured and you think, well, should I intervene? Should I go help him? We usually decide yes or no based on two questions. Number one, does this person deserve my help? Does Lot deserve Abram's help? Probably not. I mean, how did Lot get in this mess? Lot got in this mess because in the previous chapter, Abram graciously gave him first choice. He could go anywhere he wanted to go in the land, and Lot chose the region near Sodom. But did you notice here the explanation of Lot being taken captive? Lot was taken captive not just because he was near Sodom, but because what? He's living in Sodom now. What did we hear about Sodom and the surrounding cities in chapter 13? A nice, quiet little town, a place to settle down, raise a family? Now, the men of Sodom were exceedingly great sinners against the Lord. We're just in the very next chapter. And Lot has moved from the outskirts of Sodom, living in tents, to actually buying a house in Sodom so that his future is tied up in the future of Sodom. Does he deserve Abram's help? If I were Abram, looking at Lot as my nephew, I'd probably shake my head and say, goodness gracious, well, I've done all that I can do, you know? I've been carrying this kid or this man-child for as long as I can. I've given him the best offer of the land. He made his bed. Let him lie in it. The second question that we often ask when it comes time to say, should I intervene, should I help? We ask, does this person deserve my help? Number two, will this inconvenience or hurt me in any way? If you're Abram, how would you answer that question? Four kings from a distant land have come and have utterly destroyed any opposition that has been presented to them, culminating in the destruction of the armies of Sodom and Gomorrah and the five alliance army. If I go and try to win Lot back, is that going to be an inconvenience to me? Abram, when he gets the news, seems like he's living pretty comfortably right now. I mean, as comfortably as you can when you're living in tents and you're not able to put down roots, right? He's living by the Oaks of Mamre. He's made some friends, apparently, with guys who are already living in the land. Abram could very easily say, that's not my concern. That's going to put me out. That's going to stretch me beyond what I'm capable of doing. It's an inconvenience. That would be an understatement. The reality is, is that more than just an inconvenience, it is a threat to Abram to put himself into this mix to try to retrieve Lot from his captors. If Abram goes to try to intervene, Abram could very well be killed and die in the pro- could be killed and die in the process. But he does it. King Abram, who does not have the title of king, who does not look like a king, 
acts like the most virtuous, honorable, self-sacrificing king that you could ever have. This man is attached to me. He's in trouble. I'm going to get him. It sounds vaguely similar, doesn't it, to this other king that you read about in the New Testament? It almost sounds like King Abram does in a very small, limited way what King Jesus is going to do in the New Testament in a big, eternal, grand way. When the eternal Son looks at those the Father has designated as His family, when He looks and He looks at us, does He look at us and say, they deserve my help? These God-hating, arrogant rebels, they deserve my help. Is that what the Son saw when He looked at us? Far from it. If the Son looked at us and said, now before I do anything, before I go, before I go out on this rescue operation, I need to ask myself, is this going to inconvenience me or harm me in any way? How would the Son answer that question? To the extent that God can be inconvenienced, you would have to say, well, yeah, this is going to be a huge inconvenience. You're going to have to empty yourself to enter in to their rescue. And your rescue, your deliverance of your people is going to come at the expense of your own life. Isn't this what we're told over and over again in the New Testament? This is the picture we get of the king who leaves his throne and comes to redeem and save and deliver a people who have been bound by sin and death to slavery all their lives? John 15, 13, Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that he do what? Lay down his life for his friends. Paul says in Colossians 1, that through Christ we have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the Son. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same. Pause right there for a second. You understand that one of the great differences between what we see Abram doing in Genesis 14 and what Christ does in the New Testament, Abram was already flesh and blood with Lot. The son was not. The son made himself flesh and blood by taking on a human nature precisely so that he could effectively save and redeem us. Do you see how Jesus goes far beyond even Abram? Since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. We read Genesis 14, and what we ought to say is, I want someone like Abram. I want someone who is stronger than me. I want someone who is wiser than me. I want someone who will defend me even when I don't deserve defending. I want someone who will rescue me even if it means that he, the rescuer, will take all of the cost on himself. I want that. Because if my only hope in life 
is to make myself deserving of rescue. What a bleak, pitiful future I have. But if I look in the pages of Scripture, if we look in the pages of Scripture and we see Abram doing the unthinkable for an undeserving person like Lot, and we say, if Abram, weak and fleshly man that he was, can be the very best of what it means to be a king ruling and reigning for his kin, how much more encouragement and security should I find in the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, who became my flesh and blood so that He could rescue me and keep me all of my days. But then you understand, don't you, that because this is what Jesus does, Jesus saves and rescues undeserving sinners who have made a mess of their lives by their own choices by their own actions, even though Jesus comes and He saves at His own expense, at His own cost, at the sacrifice of His own life, you understand that the, that the Scriptures don't stop there. This is where it gets real fun. The Scriptures say, and because that is what your king has done for you, and because you are going to be kings and queens ruling with Him, guess what you get to do right now? Living now in light of your future, you get to live like your king lived. You get to intervene and rescue the lost and the hurting, even if they don't deserve it and even if it's going to cost you. See, the first side of that coin, man, I can sing and rejoice with the best of them an undeserving captive, an undeserving slave who has been rescued because of the, just the sheer grace and kindness of God. But when you begin to say, and Jonathan, if you really understand the significance of that, how that transforms your life, you're going to begin to see that God is using you as an instrument of rescue in the lives of your brothers and sisters as well. And now all of a sudden, I'm not so excited. 1 John 3.16, just so you know, we're not drawing a false connection here. 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, John says, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our life. Is it someone that shares your last name? No. It's someone who shares fellowship and allegiance to your king. He is your brother. She is your sister. And you ought to lay down your life for them. Galatians 6, verse 1, brothers, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that, so that you too will not be tempted. You hear that? Someone who is caught in a trespass. You go, you rescue, you restore them. But listen, it's going to be dangerous for you to do that because when you get down in the muck and the mire to try to bring someone out of their cell, out of their imprisonment, you run the risk of being contaminated with that same disease. Doesn't matter, you go get them. And Jude, verses 22 through 23, have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Listen, Edgewood, it boils down to this. If you recognize even in part 
the significant act that Abram undertakes in chapter 14, if you see even a shadow of resemblance to what Jesus Christ has done for us in rescuing undeserving, sinful rebels at His own cost and expense, if that is the life that we are to follow and imitate and mimic, then it means that every brother and sister in Christ, especially those that are part of your local body, they are your concern and responsibility. We don't have the luxury of looking at someone making a wreck or making a mess of their lives and just simply shaking our heads and saying, well, I hope they come to their senses soon. Call them. Write them. Buy them coffee. That's not going to cost too much. And then intervene in their life so that you can save them from certain pain and suffering and even potentially destruction in the end. Because that's what the body of Christ does. So Abram takes the initiative, enters into the conflict to save Lot, even though he doesn't deserve it, even though it comes at his own personal risk, he decides to set out and to retrieve Lot, and he does. Wonder of wonders. He's victorious, uses a little strategery, defeats the army, brings Lot, and brings the women, the people, the riches back. And so we turn now and we look at an interesting choice that's presented to Abram when he returns riding high on this victory. Verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva. The king of Sodom, the one who rules over a city that is exceedingly sinful and wicked, who is himself exceedingly sinful and wicked. The Sodomite king goes out to meet Abram as he comes back from his victory. And then, verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brings out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of the spoil. And then immediately after that, the Sodomite king comes to Abram and makes an offer to him. Abram, if you'll return the citizens so that we can take them back home, you can keep everything else that your hard work has earned you. Do you take it? Why wouldn't you? It's only fair. This is free market capitalism. An honest day's work, an honest day's wage. Let me tell you what I think is going on in this King of Sodom, Melchizedek, King of Sodom, back and forth going on. The King of Sodom is mentioned first, and he comes out to meet Abram as he's returning. So first on the screen, so to speak, if this were a movie, we'd see the sinful, exceedingly wicked king coming to meet Abram. But before the king of Sodom is able to say anything to Abram or to offer Abram riches and wealth that he has supposedly earned, Melchizedek appears and sort of jumps into the frame and he speaks first. What does he speak to Abram before the king of Sodom has a chance to speak? He speaks a blessing on Abram. But notice the way that he presents the blessing to Abram. 
Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High who has given you this victory. Do you, do you hear what's going on there? In the blessing, in the announcement, Melchizedek is reminding Abram that his blessing is attached to God before he's tempted with an offer to bless himself with the riches of this world. You're blessed, Abram. You're blessed, Abram, because you're connected to the one who owns all of this. You are blessed. You are rich. And the blessing also acknowledges that although the king of Sodom and everyone else is going to see this as Abram's victory, Melchizedek says, Abram, don't think this is you. Don't think that you are the one who accomplished this. Don't think that you are the one who's deserving. No, Abram, God gave you this victory. God delivered your enemies into your hand. God is the one who has brought you back successful from this conflict, who has delivered you from this threat so that you can enter back into the land and live out the rest of your days. God has done that, Abram, not you. So Melchizedek shows up as a king, as the tenth king, the one that we ought to pay attention to, and he's a priest king. He not only rules and reigns over the city of peace and wholeness, he is a righteous king. He is, as Hebrews 7 will say, nothing less than the type of Christ. And this Christ figure, this Christ figure king comes and says to Abram, Abram, before you start talking to this guy over here, remember two things. Remember who you belong to and remember who has blessed you with success. Because what is Abram going to face next? He's going to turn and standing right there to the side of Melchizedek is the king of Sodom who says, good job, Abram. Boy, you really pulled it off. We didn't think you had it in you. What, what can we do to make it up to you? What can we do to show you our gratitude for what you have done? But you see, with that offer of wealth and riches, Abraham recognizes a danger that if I enter into this arrangement, even if I feel like it's owed me, this guy now is going to lay claim to having a part in the blessing that I'm enjoying. He's going to take glory away from God. He's going to say, yeah, Abraham's done a lot of good things, but you know what really set him on his way was the arrangement that we worked out. Abraham, know who you are. Know who you belong to. Know that your blessing comes from the Most High God that owns all of this. This man, this king of Sodom, he cannot give you anything other than what God already owns. Even if He could make you rich, even if He could give you some pitifully small blessing, it pales in comparison to the one who possesses heaven and earth and who has offered to you the inheritance of heaven and earth if you will walk and remain faithful to Him. Christians, we navigate a world in a society and a culture where we are confronted often, frequently, sometimes daily with this kind of choice, this kind of test. 
Do I make my life more convenient? Do I make it easier? Do I excel? Do I advance myself by making arrangements with the world? Am I willing to enter into a give-and-take relationship with a world, an entire world system way of thinking that is doomed and is passing away, that is the very antithesis of what the righteous rule and, righteous rule and reign of Christ is? Do I, do I make a peace treaty with that? Do I enter in so that we can both make ourselves rich and comfortable together? Sometimes that means, because a promotion at the workplace would mean compromising Christian virtues or clear commands in Scripture, you have to, like Abram, say, no, I am not going to make myself rich by entering into compromise with the world. I'll take less money. Why would you do that, you fool? Oh, will you do it if you're thoroughly convinced that this 10, 15, 20, whatever percent raise you get with the new job that's going to compromise you, that's going to attack your soul, you gladly set that aside when you know that you have 10 times, a thousand times more of that coming in the reward that comes with Christ. Parents, are you going to compromise with the world to try to make it easy and more peaceful and more quiet in your home when the world begins to tug and pull at your kids? Or are you going to seize every moment and every opportunity that you're given to try to explain to your children why it is that we don't do these things, why it is that we don't adopt these habits, why it is that we live differently because this looks like the offer of enjoyment and fun and reward, but son or daughter, I'm telling you, the joy that comes in union with Christ is far better than anything that this world can offer. When you go out into the world and when you wake up on Monday morning and when you have to navigate all of the offers and exchanges and opportunities to barter and trade, are you intentionally, frequently bringing to your mind, I know who I am. I know where my blessing comes from. I know that any kind of success or happiness or even creaturely comfort that I get in this life, I know whose hand it comes from. I do not have to bend the knee to this person or that corporation or this philosophy or this new fad thought or idea. The one who blesses me is God Most High. So this is what Genesis 14 does. It holds up Abram as a model of what it means to live a life of faith, living as a future king in the present as a king right now, which means you take on royal obligations to those who are attached to you, to your flesh and blood. You protect, you defend, you deliver. Just as Christ protected, delivered, saved His flesh and blood, even to the point of death. And it's a reminder that for those who stand to inherit the world and eternal riches, we should be able to resist the tempting offers of this life because we have something better coming. Because we are a royal race, a chosen priesthood that God will shower with blessings when Christ comes to rule and reign 
in a renewed heaven and earth. Live now like you will be living in the future. Let's pray. Father, how easy it is to be distracted by the things of this life, to see the objects, the rewards, the, the money, the fame, the fortune, whatever it is that this world has to offer, whatever it is that our eyes can see or our hearts can desire, how easy it is to be distracted by those things and to be lured into chasing those things, forgetting that we have eternal riches promised to us in fellowship with Jesus Christ. Father, even as we sang at the start of this service, would you be our vision? Would you make us into people who do not pay attention, pay attention to riches or fame or the applause of men, but who find our wealth and our inheritance only in your presence and in the kingdom that's to come? Help us to live now in light of what we stand to gain in the future. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Before Andy comes and leads us in one concluding song, let me appeal to you, if you are here uh, in the sanctuary right now, or even if you're viewing this by way of live stream, if you don't know confidently with assurance that the future reward that God offers to all of those who have been made brothers and sisters with Jesus Christ, if you don't know that that future reward is waiting for you, I would love to talk to you. The truth of the matter is that no one deserves the reward that God offers. No one can gain the promises of eternal life and unending glory unless God gives it to them, but He gives it to anyone who wants to come and take it. If that's you, don't leave this place until you talk to someone sitting in the pew or talk to me afterwards. I'm willing to stay as late as possible if you want to hang back and you want to talk in the sanctuary after everyone's vacated. Andy? Well, as we close, um, I just wanted, uh, in a spirit of Valentine's, uh, we often think of the word love, um, and this song that I would like to close with is just speaks of how we love Jesus. We as believers sitting here today love Jesus. Even non-believers love Jesus. Um, and, but how do, we, how do we even come to a point of loving someone? And in the second verse of the song, it says, we love Jesus because he first loved us. And so I, would, I just want us to sing the first and second verse of this song as we close and reflect on how Jesus loved us. That's the only way we can love him and each other as a body of Christ. Let's stand as we rejoice in this song. Jesus, I love Thee, I know Thou art mine, for Thee all the follies of sin I resign, my gracious
on Calvary's tree. Just all the saints singing together, that last verse, which speaks of in mansions of glory, I feel like it, it, it goes hand in hand with Jonathan's message. That's what we strive for, right? To have a mansion in glory, not here on earth. Let's close with this. In mansions of glory and endless delight. Sing with the glittering crown on my brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Amen. You're dismissed.